So this is a broken toy. Um, it's, it's really broken. It's badly broken. It used to have a handle. Used to, uh, it used to be a pretty cool toy, actually. This toy was made by a toy maker. It was actually created by a toy maker and then sort of assembled by my son at Disneyland. They had this really cool shop where you could make your own lightsaber, and, and that's a pretty exciting thing. And so at, at the beginning, this was designed for a specific purpose. It was designed to be used in a specific way. It had all these cool elements to it. It had lights. It would extend. It would make sounds and everything. It was good. Kids would say it was cool. Uh, this, was really, this was really kind of a, a, a pretty cool thing to have when, when he had it originally a long time ago. When it was made, it was a good toy. But then something happened. Uh, actually, a lot of things happened to this toy. This is a barely recognizable like, um, artifact of, a, of an old toy. I had to dig deep into the closet. Something happened. Uh, to this, and, and, and it broke. And, and we could spend a lot of time um, arguing about why it broke, whose fault it was that it broke. Um, and there'd be some value there, probably, but ultimately it wouldn't help, because in the end of the day, that was, those might be interesting conversations, but it doesn't change the fact that this is broken. This is not the way it was supposed to be, right? So the bottom line this morning is this, that uh, the world is broken, and it's not the way it's supposed to be. This wasn't the will of the toy maker, it's not what he wanted. This isn't why he made the toy. The toy was created for a specific purpose. Somewhere along the line, it got broken. And I don't know how it makes you feel when you see brokenness. Uh, there was a time in my life when whenever I saw brokenness, I would get really instantly judgmental, and I'd want to point my finger, and I'd want to decide who can I blame for that, for that brokenness. And I, and I admit there's still part of that that's inside me. There's another part of my life, whenever I saw brokenness, I would just get really mad, like frustrated, almost hopeless. I would think things like, what's the point of trying hard? Why do, we, why do we continue to make this effort? It's all gonna fall apart in the end anyway. It seems like everything does, and I would just get sort of frustrated. And, and, I, and I admit there's still a part of that inside me too. But mostly at this seasoned stage of my life, <laughs> when I see stuff that's broken, it just makes me sad. It makes me sad. Um, not just when a toy breaks, but when a relationship breaks, it makes me sad. Uh, when a promise is broken, that makes me really sad. When bodies get broken, uh, when hearts get broken, mostly I get sad. I get sad because it's just so broken and because it's not supposed to be that way. And I really, really, really hope that you'll consider this word this morning. I think that this is a very important word when we're talking about bigger picture understanding, especially from a Christian perspective. I want you to consider the important word broken. Here's why this is so important. Because how you choose to interpret the evil in this world, how you choose to interpret or understand the disasters that are happening around us, the perversion that is happening around us, the, the things that are a daily occurrence in most of our lives, for some of you, are a very present and personal reality, even in your own homes, in your own lives. In other words, how you choose to make sense of all this how you choose to handle the hearing of certain things or the seeing of certain things, how you choose to categorize things like people driving cars into crowds of people, whether they're tourists or they're protesters, how you choose to sort of order in your mind and categorize the dynamic of people yelling at other people and cursing other people, or even natural things, so-called, like mudslides that cover over Huge groups of people. Where do you put stuff? Where do you put stuff like Parkinson's disease or teenage suicide or, or racism 
or rape. How do we order this? It's critical. It's, it's a matter of life and death. I want to say it's a matter of life and death because it's the difference between uh, overwhelming despair in life and a resilient hope. A resilient hope. Why did that happen? That's the question that people want to ask all the time. They do. Why did that happen? And uh, after you know, being in full-time ministry for almost 20 years, my answer is, I don't know. I don't know. But this is what I do know. In the beginning, it was good, and now it's broken. Things are not the way they were intended to be. I got an email last week, and it included this section, which I'm going to share from you or with you. The email said this, I'll never forget the first time attending one of your sermons. It was almost as if you were talking directly to my family, and you said during your sermon, God doesn't go around killing little boys with cancer. That's not what God is about. That sentence alone changed my perspective on God and religion. I only wish more people could see it that way too. Now friends, there's something wonderful about this email and there's something tragic about this email. What's what's wonderful about this email is that I didn't know, this happened when we were at the school, and I didn't even know the family that wrote me this email was there. Um, I didn't realize the the details of what had happened. They had recently lost their 12-year-old son to cancer. Um, and, and the comment about God not giving kids cancer wasn't in my notes. I, I manuscript my sermons. I have what I'm going to say planned out. That wasn't written out. It was just something that I felt moved in the moment to say. And so the fact that there was a grieving family in our community that day that felt like, A, God saw their pain. B, God recognized where they were and what they needed to hear. And C, they, they were able to get some sort of word and, and, sen- and sense that God was speaking to them. That's wonderful, right? That's amazing. Uh, we give the Holy Spirit credit for that kind of uh, encounter that people are able to have. Now, why is it tragic? What's, what's tragic about this email? Well, well, what's tragic is that she writes, that sentence alone changed my perspective on God and religion. I only wish that more people could see it that way. Okay, so if, if I said God doesn't give kids cancer, and that changed her perspective, then what, what had she been thinking ever since she lost this little boy. What had she been thinking ever since he got sick? That God did this? That this was God's plan? That this was the way it was supposed to be? See, friends, this is why theology is so important. If we get this wrong, it really messes us up. It really messes us up. It gives us a really twisted view of God and life. One of the Bible project videos that we proposed, recommended that you watch this week as part of our reading plan, our fall reading plan, was a video on atonement and sacrifice. And it began with this simple sentence, we all long for the world to be good. And I love that. It has resonated with me. Of course we do. We all do. We long for a world that is good. We were made to, and it's not just us as people. The Apostle Paul says to the Christians in Rome, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. What's Paul talking about? He's saying that all that has been created is longing like a woman in the throes of childbirth for something to come. What is is that thing that we're looking for? For the world to be good again. That's what we're longing for, the redemption of all of this that has gone so wrong. 
Last week, we began a new teaching series. It's called Five Words to Explain the Past and the Present and the Future of All Things. And what we're trying to do is give a very big, like 30,000-foot overview on the story of Scripture. I know there's a lot that we leave out in this series, but we're trying to give a big arc. The first word, the way the Bible starts, as I said last week, is with the word good. It's very clear. It's repeated over and over again in the first chapter of the book. The beginning of the story is good. In case you missed it, let me just take two minutes to sort of reiterate what I said last week. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, and he said it was good at the end of the first day of creation and at the end of each of the first five days of creation. The, the, the section will end with God looking over what he has done and, and saying it is good. And then at the end of what the writer calls the sixth day of creation, God looks over everything that he has created and he says, and it is very good. And we talked about how important it is if we're going to be a part of this, actually going to work for restoration to recognize that the first word of the story is good, that the picture on the top of the puzzle box is a good picture. This is what we're working to build again. In the beginning, it was all good. I said there were three reasons this was really key. Good reveals the character of God. Good describes the original nature of all things. Good gives us a starting point for our own stories. And we also talked last week about how easy and how common it is to begin the story, not with the word good, but with the word bad. And how if we start with the wrong word, it leads to all kinds of problems. It leads to perspectives on God and religion, to quote the email that I put up on, that, that are very destructive. And now God is seen as mean, as inconsistent, as malicious, as distant, as out to get us. We got to earn his affection. Life itself is maybe pointless or without, her, without order. Maybe it's random or some other sort of twisted idea that's rooted ultimately in a misunderstanding of the story. So the fact that the story begins with the word good, it might feel kind of unnecessary to address, but I would argue in reality it's critical because if we actually be believe that in the beginning it was good, we can believe that by God's grace. I know you've been wounded. I know you've seen a lot of craziness, but if you can believe that in the beginning it was good, that'll change everything for you. And so I preached that last week, and I hope that you left here feeling really encouraged. I hope that you felt left feeling really hopeful. And I wonder if you made it to your car before it was challenged by some reality of real life, right? I wonder if you made it to Sunday night before you saw something and went, oh my, well, how do you explain this then? Because this is completely messed up, right? I wonder if you made it to Monday morning before you were like, well, that's, that's sort of naive. That's, that's crazy. That doesn't... Some of you were sitting here while I was preaching. I could see it in your eyes and you're going, I don't know. I don't know if it's all good because it sure seems messed up, right? It really seems like it's kind of jacked beyond recognition here. Um, some of you probably uh, are wondering if this idea of goodness at all is just sort of a fairy tale fantasy in light of the challenges and the reality of the stuff that you've experienced. So how does the Bible explain all that? How does the Bible explain that tension between it began good and now it's clearly not? What is the biblical explanation for all the terrible stuff that we saw just in the last seven days, on our phones, on our TVs, to put it really simply, okay? It's here's a simplified version, but to put it really simply, the Bible explains all of that by saying it like this. It's broken. It's broken. Let me show you how this works out. In Genesis 1, we, here it is, 
Genesis 1, we get the big story of creation, right? God creates all that is, and that Genesis 1 ends with God looking over all of creation and saying it's very good. Genesis 2 is not an alternative creation story. It is not a contradictory creation story. It is just a much more specific creation story. So the writer, after explaining how this sort of universe size creation happens, then focuses in on a very specific story in a specific garden in a specific place with a specific relationship between a woman and a man as perfect companions. And Genesis 2 also ends with a beautiful statement reflecting the goodness of all that exists but not as a big cosmic universal size and it was all very good, but in a very intimate and personal statement, which is this, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame, right? It's another way of saying it was all good, complete relational goodness. Thinking things like intimacy, like security, like sufficiency, like freedom, it was all good at the end of Genesis 2. And then Genesis 3, I'll read the first part of it. This is where stuff breaks. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, so the serpent speaks. So it's a, it's a, it's a historic poem. Don't get hung up on some of the modern problems. Let the story tell the story. So the serpent speaks to the woman and says... Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So there's a profound study of deception that we could look into here, uh, which isn't really my point. But look at how, look, watch what happens here. He's going to question what God said. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat from any fruit of, of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. So far, she's right on. Then she says, and you must not touch it or you will surely die, right? So she's exaggerating just a, just a little bit. She just kind of makes it seem a little bit more extreme than it initially was. The serpent's response, verse 4, you will not certainly die. In other words, hmm, are you sure about that? Maybe you're an exception. Maybe it won't happen to you. Maybe God's wrong. God knows, serpent says, that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. To a point, what the serpent says is exactly right. It's the truth. But it is not the whole truth. This is the way he does it. This is how deception happens. Boy, it looks, it looks so close to being true. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. Narrator has to, narrator has to point out, because he hasn't said a word yet. He was with her. Um, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. It's never happened before. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? I'll summarize the rest. What happens next is the man blames the woman. 
And then the woman blames the serpent. And then God curses the serpent. And then God describes the devastating natural consequences that will specifically affect the woman. And then God goes on to to describe more specific devastating consequences that will affect the man. And then God says, because of what you've done, the ground is cursed now. And then God says to the ones that he has created in his own image, he says, you're going to return to dust. In other words, life will now be defined in part by something that was never part of the original plan, death. And now that's going to be a thing and it's going to affect everybody, right? It's tragic and there's so much here. But what ultimately happens in Genesis chapter three is that everything, all of creation, it goes from good to broken. Everything's working out great at the end of chapter two. And at the end of chapter three, it's gone from good to bad. And for the rest of the Bible until the very end, it actually goes from bad to much, much worse. Everything is broken. Three ways this brokenness shows up specifically. The relationship between people and God, it's broken. Now we have separation from God. This has never even been a thing. It's never even been a concept before, but now it is. There's no unity anymore between People and God. The idea of being separated from God is introduced. The idea of being afraid from God, of God is introduced. Uh, people hiding from God begins to happen. Disobedience begins. That results in judgment, punishment. Those are new things. So the relationship between people and God gets broken, messed up. Relationship between people and people gets broken and messed up. Now there's shame. Now there's blame. There's this horrible role tension that happens between husband and wife the end of chapter two, it's working great. Husband is giving himself completely to wife in total security. At the end of chapter three, there's jealousy. There's longing for control. They've moved from to have and to hold to to be jealous of and to try to control. It's a mess. And then third, the relationship between people and creation or the environment, that gets all broken. Now there's this inherent struggle for basic survival. There's pain and childbirth. There's a struggle just to find the food that you need to eat. It was so readily available in the previous chapter. So man and woman get sold the shiny promise of God-likeness, and it mutates into this like totally disappointing bucket of sorrow and sweat and dust. Why did they believe the snake? That was my kids. My kids used to say that when they were little. Why did they believe the snake? You should never believe snakes. Isn't that clear? <laughs> Talking snakes, right? Why did they eat the fruit? Love that. What's the answer? What do you think? It's so challenging, isn't it? Why did they believe that snake? There's a lot going on there. I don't know how you have answered that question for your kids. There's a lot going on there. Eve is deceived about God's motive behind his instructions. She begins thinking, maybe he's not good. So that's part of what's going on there. Adam, tragically silent at the critical moment, that's, that's a problem. That's going on there. They both listen to creature versus creator. That's going on. That's a problem. They both make self-fulfillment their goal. This is why this pursuit of happiness is such, an, a, such a deceptive goal. It's really problematic. Why do they eat the forbidden fruit? In other words, what's behind the brokenness? So the best answer I came up with for my kids after reading this story with them over and over and over again is, that, is this, that they got selfish. They got selfish. They started thinking about me first. It was all good. 
And then the people get selfish, and now everything's broken. It's broken spiritually, it's broken relationally, it's broken environmentally. Everything's broken. It's not the way it was supposed to be. Ten years ago in May, I was in a coffee shop in Sacramento. Carmen and I, Sienna, who was six, we were living in a motorhome in a parking lot at a hospital. And a few days earlier, my son had been diagnosed with leukemia, cancer of the blood. He was four and after those first really intense days, I started, I started needing a break. And so during the day, for uh, an hour or so, I would walk down the street to this coffee shop, and I would order this great chamomile and soy tea. It was called the Bowl of Soul. And so I would sit there, and I would nurse the Bowl of Soul. And uh, I was just reeling. I was reeling. <clears throat> and uh, one night, it was a night, and uh, there were these college students there, and they were preparing for a final exam. It was May. And I, I have a total inability to block sounds out. Sometimes if I'm talking to you and I feel distracted, it's because I am, because I'm hearing everything happening all around. And I couldn't block these people out. They're preparing for a philosophy exam. I love philosophy. And they're answering the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And I'm trying to take a break from a really bad thing, right? But I can't block these guys out. And the, the conversation, I wrote it down in my journal. It was just too weird. They're saying, well, it's because God's you know, maybe he's not all present. Well, if he's God, he's kind of got to be all present. So they went, okay, I guess that's not it. Maybe he's not all powerful. And they kind of talked about that for a while, decided, no, he's, he's probably all powerful if he's really God. Maybe he's not good. Yeah, that's what they said. Yep, he's not good. Clearly he's not good. There wasn't even a debate about the goodness of God because they looked around and clearly he's not good. How do you explain all this stuff that's happening everywhere? And I'm telling you, friends, it was so disturbing to hear these kids speaking so loudly with the sophomoric confidence, dismissing the Christian idea of a good God as naive, as pathetically fairy tale. And beyond that, what was so twilight zone for me was just a few, literally a few minutes before I had sat there in a hospital room with my four-year-old son, gripping my hand in pain, looking at me in my eyes and saying, Daddy, why do little boys get sick? It's the same question. They were asking the same question, but they were coming at it from two different perspectives. One group was using these detached, academic, big words, college students trying to make a grade, trying to impress the girl. The other person was asking this question in a totally personal and direct way, a four-year-old trying to make sense of a good God that his daddy's been telling him about since he was a little boy, and now he's sick. So how does this make sense, Dad? And I thought then that the best way to respond, maybe the only way I could respond to my four-year-old son was to say, well, son, it's because everything's broken now. The little, little boys get sick. It's not the way it's supposed to be. This wasn't what God planned. This is just the way it is now. This isn't what God had in mind. And, and I think if those college kids would have invited me over to their table and asked me to feed into their conversation, I would have took the bait, man. I would have just took the bait and I would have tried to explain the problem of evil in much more sophisticated ways. But I'm telling you, after 10 years and seeing a lot more brokenness, I'm coming down on this. The four-year-old answer is the better answer. Okay, that's, that's about as good as we can get. Because things are broken, that's why, that's why bad stuff happens. Everything's messed up. People hide from God because they're afraid. They don't think he loves them. Moms and dads argue and fight because there's this built-in tension and division that just has affected us. Babies have genetic problems before they're even born. Everything's wrong. Something at a very basic, very core to our existence is broken. 
And this brokenness, all of this brokenness, the root of it is selfishness, ultimately. And it's literally infected all of us. What's the, what is the word that the Bible uses to refer to what I'm talking about? It's sin, right? It's sin. And we have all kinds of red flags with the word sin because it's come to mean so many things for us or whatever. But that's what, that's what the Bible is talking about when it uses the word sin. Things that happen when we act on the false belief that God is wrong and I am right. That I know better than the creator of the universe. That's sin. We struggle with it every day. We're all pretty selfish people. The challenge, friends, is to realize that the real problem is not that God is bad. He's not bad. He's good. The real problem is not that he doesn't care. He does care. The real problem is that he's not that he's not strong enough. He can't do anything about it or he doesn't know about it. No, the real problem is sin. God created a real earth. Real natural forces, real people, real consequences, real freedom of choice, and no matter how much we dress it up to look glamorous or sexy, when we think we know better than God, it's sin. It is a selfishly motivated decision that takes this promise of glory and intimacy with God, and it just flips it, and it turns it into sorrow and dust, and everything gets messed up, and everything's broken. And that brokenness, it's just saturated the human condition now. We see it throughout human history, Genesis forward, spiritual brokenness, political brokenness, social brokenness, even biological brokenness. All right, that's kind of heavy. What do we do about that? Well, that's where we're going to head in the next couple weeks. What are we going to do about this? Can we do anything about this? And let me just say, granted, this is big picture, right? These are big categories, so we're using really simple processes and, um, and perspectives, but essentially I want to say this. That as people, specifically as Christians, as followers of Christ, who now find themselves living in a broken world, affected by the brokenness, and even tragically infected by the brokenness, it's affected us inside too. Here's what we can do. Here's what we can do. I think it probably boils down to one of two options. We can either perpetuate the brokenness, or we can push back against it. Because things are broken. That's what you're given. That's what's on your table. That's what you've got to deal with. It's a mess. So what are you going to do with this, all this chaotic mess? Well, you can either spread it around to all these different situations and people, or you can push back against it. We can either spend today and the next week and the rest of our lives just trying to you know, ignore or sort of cover up or, or we can resist it. We can push back against it. We can counter it. And I want to say specifically this, that the best way for the Christian to push back against the brokenness is to propose a creative alternative to the brokenness. All right. To propose a creative alternative. Did you notice from the Genesis one account, or I'm sorry, Genesis three account, that evil cannot create anything. It can only pervert what has already been created. Evil can only take something that is good, because evil can't create. So evil can only take something that is good, like language or strength or sex, and twist it, pervert it. We, we however, because we've been made in the image of God, we have this power to create, to make something. And so we don't have to just take the brokenness that has been given to us and use that same brokenness to push back against it. We can create a better alternative to the brokenness. We should resist. We should push back. 
We should say, no, not here. That, that's not, gonna, not in my marriage. That's not the way it's going to work here. Not in my family. That's broken. It's not going to happen here. Not in this church. Right? Not in my neighborhood. The cycle of brokenness ends here. This pattern of meeting brokenness with more brokenness, it's got to stop right here. And this may be the way that we find the world broken and messed up. It may, if we're honest, even be the way we find ourselves in those honest moments, broken and messed up. But here's the thing, friends. We cannot restore brokenness by just facing brokenness with more brokenness. We can't just bring back to the table a different kind of brokenness or a bigger brokenness or a louder brokenness or a stronger brokenness. It never seems to work. Have you noticed to actually end brokenness by bringing and addressing it with more, more brokenness? In other words, you can't, if the brokenness is showing up with sticks, you can't actually do anything about that when you just show up with bigger sticks or more sophisticated sticks. I literally saw a picture last night, a close-up, one of these horrible pictures from the week, and it took me, it, literally, it took me like 20 seconds to figure out who was fighting against who. They all looked the same. They were all holding sticks, and they're all beating on each other. I had, it like took me a while, because of course that's what you're thinking, right? Who's on whose team? It's a mess. Christians are called to face that brokenness. Absolutely. We are to confront and counter the brokenness. Absolutely. We're to push back against the brokenness. But how? With the creative alternative to the brokenness. Something like goodness. Okay? Something like love. How do we do that? It's complicated, isn't it? It's messy. It's really challenging. Uh, we read a story about um, a group of pastors who went out in front of a statue in one town because they're going to face the racism that's coming because it's, racism is, is wrong. Racism is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, the variety of races in our, in our culture is a sign of the creativity of God. Check Revelation chapter 7. God is worshipped in the highest moment as all the nations gather, all the languages speak his name, right? And so this racist view of people is broken. Pastors, this story showed, they, sh they showed up to, to resist this, but they're not going to fight the brokenness in the same way that others are trying to fight the brokenness. They knelt down in front and, and prayed. I'm not saying that's the only way to face the brokenness. I'm saying it's an example of a creative alternative to addressing brokenness. You follow me? It's saying, listen, we can only go so far by trading blows. There's got to be a better alternative here, and we're going to show you uh, one way to do it. It's not the only way. Definitely one way. Let me end with this. Here's a question that I want to encourage you to ask yourself in order to navigate this increasingly challenging situation of trying to address this complex brokenness in our world. Here's the question. Does this thought, word, or deed, does this activity I'm considering, does this behavior I'm considering, does this entertainment or way of speaking or way of thinking, does this thing perpetuate the brokenness? Does it celebrate somehow the fact that things are broken? Does it spread around more brokenness? Does it amplify the brokenness? If the answer is yes, don't do that. Don't do that. 
If instead, this thought, word, or deed mourns the reality, doesn't dismiss it, it's not what I'm saying, if it mourns the reality of the brokenness, if it takes the posture of repentance, I share in some, I, at some level, I share in the responsibility for this brokenness. If it takes the posture of repentance or if it proposes a creative alternative to the brokenness, a different method, a different playing field, do that. Do that. Our role is to realize this is broken, to repent of any role that we've played in the brokenness, and then to do the hard work, friends, the hard work of peacemaking, of rebuilding, of proposing creative alternatives to the brokenness. Because we were made in the image of God. That's what's been smashed around. The world needs the church to be the church, to demonstrate to, to embody first amongst ourselves and then to demonstrate a creative alternative to the chaos that we've seen just all over the place in the last week and in the last 2,000 years. So let's pray for grace and courage to do that. I'm just aware, Lord, that there's so many backgrounds and perspectives and experiences and so and it's, it's been confusing it's been challenging to know what's true and how to respond to it and so I pray for grace for us as the church may we honor you in the way we live our lives here um, may we uh, have the courage in what appears most days to be a pretty comfortable and safe culture for many of us. May we have the courage to face the brokenness and this destruction that it's causing and then to address it in ways that are good and loving and right, restorative, truly restorative. God have mercy on the church. God have mercy on us. As we struggle with the pain of loss and violence and seek to bring a better world here and now. In Jesus' name, amen.